Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Maybe seated. When I first began to study this passage, I was immediately struck with its intensity and with the masterful way in which it was written. Every word, it seems, hangs upon another, and to lose one would be to lose and dismiss the others. It is so intricately woven that one could spend a lifetime trying to unpack the richness of the passage and its implications and still come up woefully short. Pastor John and other men have commented that there is no greater paragraph that has ever been written, and many agree that if they had to lose the whole Bible and keep one portion of Scripture, that they would keep these few verses. For within this passage, the keys to the gospel is exposed. The divine motive behind the cross is rectified, and God's purpose in the Messiah has clearly been shown. One can scarcely take a breath while reading this passage before another deep theological truth is thrust upon them. Even doing simple word studies of this passage will send you off on a journey that can consume hours and days and weeks and even years of time. What a treasure the Word of God is. No mere man could possibly have written so magnificent. No multitude of minds over a millennia could compose to write something so profound, of which the implications are so infinite. Only the mind of God could possibly compose such a beautiful melody, and only the omniscient creator could paint such a perfect vignette. When we look at these verses, we should be struck with the implications of what God has done in Christ. We as humans are self-centered creatures that spend the vast majority of our time concerned with nothing but ourselves and what we are assured we deserve out of this life. Passages like this and others should snap our heads back to the reality of why we and all things material exist in this universe. God makes no mistakes. He never falters. He does all things perfect. Never second guesses and always moves perfectly within his character according to his divine will and good pleasure. God has never had to imagine anything, for he knows all things from eternity past into eternity future. God has purposed in Christ to redeem a people unto his name for his glory as a gift to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We exist through him and for him. He is the giver of life and the taker of the same. When we read verses 
when we read the verses in Romans 3, 21 through 26, we get a snapshot, as it were, of God's view of salvation and his purposes therein. No one could argue that the clear teaching of the passage is that God has set forth Christ as a propitiation to vindicate his holy name that has been profaned among the nations. By slaying his son, God has shown that his justice will be upheld, upheld to the utmost. That by Christ's death on the cross, the wrath of God fell on the head of his son in the place of all who would believe on his name. That God might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But I wonder, do we really understand this? I would argue that if we did, we would be prostrate before our God, worshipping him in humility and fear. When a person is genuinely confronted with the reality of their sinfulness and the reality of God's Son bearing up his people while he too hung on the cross, the sheer weight of this should drive us to our knees with our empty hands turned upward, looking toward God in thanksgiving, but also in desperation, realizing that we have no hope in ourselves, but only a hope in Christ. Although the major thrust of this passage is the vindication of God's righteousness in the death of his son on behalf of the ungodly that he has set his affection on, I want to focus in on God the Son. Without a magnified view of who it was that died on the cross, we scarcely can appreciate our own salvation or the gospel. If we have a lesser view of God the Son than is due him, we, can ex we cannot exalt him as he ought to be. So take a small journey with me now as we look, at, look into this Jesus whom God put forward for our sins and the sins of the whole world. Turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. <clears throat> Very familiar portion of Scripture. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Sometimes I wonder if we don't read enough scripture because it sums up so perfectly what, what we want to say, and it's so wonderful just to hear the word of God. We know from scripture that the incarnate word stepped out of glory into time and space as we know it to suffer the humiliation and harshness of this world that we exist. Imagine God the Son, very God, creator, designer, founder of life, the one who fashions worlds and solar systems, who hangs the heavens on nothing, who tailors the planetary systems, keeping all things together by the power of his will, 
coming and living among us. Imagine the perfect dignity and perfect holiness of our triune God existing in matchless harmony, governing all the worlds and all the heavens, nothing outside of his sovereign will or omniscient view, and then he, God, the Son, being born of a woman. There we imagine the heart of the triune God as he carefully and perfectly designed the world as we know it. Never guessing, never wondering, always the master, always knowing the beginning from the end. There we look and try to understand him in the deepest places. I dare say that these thoughts are too lofty for me and they can make one tired just by their contemplation. Look again at all the typologies and examples given in scripture, all point to Christ. All the sacrificial system pointed to the need of a final sacrifice. Thousands of years of history, millions of animal sacrifices all leading up to Jesus. The entire Old Testament is an introduction to the coming of Messiah. And all the rest of Scripture speaks to what he did while he was here and how we ought to live because of what he did and who he is. Now, Jesus, God the Son, the very author of life, steps into this falling world, breaking through the darkness with a mission to vindicate God's name by satisfying the just requirements of the law, living a perfect life, guilty of no sin, but suffering the wrath of God for all who would believe and call upon his name, establishing once and for all to the watching world that God is righteous indeed. I think we sometimes take for granted who Christ was before the Incarnation. So often in our Christian thinking, we have an image of Jesus that is so drastically inadequate. We imagine Jesus, meek and mild, the Lamb of God. And although this is true, and it's a precious truth, I might add, we often forget who it is that we are dealing with. To properly understand the Gospel, to know just exactly what it cost for him to set the captives free, to know what it took to vindicate God's holy name, we must think about Jesus in the proper way. If Jesus is only a created being, simply a man, or other rendition of who he actually was, as said by the Mormons or the Watchtower cult, then his propitiatory death holds no power to save and, and no power to appease the wrath of God. He must be infinite. A sin against an infinite God requires an infinite payment to be made. Because he is infinitely just, thus either we will spend all of eternity in hell making retribution to God, or the infinite Son of God pays it on our behalf. I'm sure that I can safely say here that we hold to a good Christology. But we must consider Christ in the proper terms to come to a fuller understanding of our salvation. In this comes profound joy an appreciation of what God has done to reconcile a people to himself. Now, in the word of God, he has given us a myriad of resources to draw from, from his word, to fill up our understanding of who Christ is so that we might honor him as he deserves. One such example is given in the 16th chapter of Leviticus. You can turn there if you like, but I'm just going to be referencing it briefly. In Leviticus 16, we find the institution of the uh, Day of Atonement, or as the Jews called it, Yom Kippur. 
The Lord gives explicit instructions to Moses for Aaron to make atonement for himself and his family and the people of Israel. This account gives a very graphic history of what was required for the atonement of the people, all of the centering around the mercy seat, or as the Hebrew transliteration reads, kapareth. And we find this very same language used in the third chapter of Romans. Now think with me for a second. God institutes the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. After deciding by casting lots which one of the goats would bear the sin and be taken outside the camp as the scapegoat, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the mercy seat with blood and and for an offering of atonement for the sins of the nation. I imagine that there was some mystery around this segregated act that was only performed by the high priest and possibly even the peering eyes of people in wonder at what just exactly was going on behind the veil. This was no public activity, and measures were taken to ensure the privacy of the event. Now, if we look back to our text in Romans, there we can see plainly the typology of this day called Yom Kippur. Looking in verse 25, Paul says that God put forward Jesus, We'll stop there. So he put forward Jesus. We need to grasp this. All that was was veiled in the Holy of Holies happened in private between the high priest and God. This high priest would fearfully enter the veil to sprinkle blood on and in front of the mercy seat, performing his priestly duties and then leaving, closing the veil behind him. Probably quite thankful to be alive, I might add. Paul says, God put Christ forward. The Greek word here, potetheme, carries the weight of determination. But more so, the word means to be put forward in a public manner so as to be publicly displayed before all, angels and men alike. A public demonstration to show the righteousness of God in his justice, in the humiliation of Jesus, God the Son. Think about this. What do we know about Christ? When I think of the pre-incarnate Christ, I, I, the word dignity comes to my mind. This perfect dignity. He was matchlessly perfect and wonderful. To think of Christ, God, to take on something so low as human flesh. He was invincible God, immortal God, who came and could stub his toe and cut his fingers. I mean, it's, it's amazing to think of what he bore and what he came from to come down here to save sinners. It's amazing. He was dignified. He is dignified. He who is of infinite worth, majesty, glory, beauty, loveliness, this is the king. The dignity and perfection of Jesus Christ is surpassed by none and upheld by him alone. He who is the King of kings and Lord of lords gave himself willingly to suffer and die in public view, treated as a criminal and a blasphemer, the lowest of the low, the one who is high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple, was humiliated and murdered in front of the whole watching world. Now this Jesus, God displayed publicly as a hilasterion in the Greek, as a propitiation by his blood. 
Several places in the New Testament use the word propitiation. Only twice is the Greek word hilasterion used in the New Testament. Once here translated propitiation, once in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 5 where it is translated mercy seat. Thus we can read the text as followed as follows. God displayed Christ publicly as a mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. The imagery is staggering to think about. Christ as the great high priest who enters the Holy of Holies, sprinkling his own precious blood to make atonement for his people, publicly declaring the righteousness of God for all to see and thus winning a people to himself and vindicating the holiness of God's name all in one fierce blow. But do not confuse Jesus as simply being a high priest. Consider with me Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. <clears throat> Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was a matter of obedience. Though very God and very man, Jesus, who was the man of all men, the conquering lion, the fiercest warrior, and the captain of our salvation, willfully let his assailants put him on trial and ultimately murder him. Jesus didn't meekly and fearfully enter the Holy of Holies. He alone had every right to be there. He marched in with his head held high. He then, making atonement by completing his work on the cross, rent the veil from top to bottom. Our great high priest is so much higher than all the types before him. Every sign that pointed, every image that represented him, and his death on the cross only served to set the backdrop of the brilliance of what he would fulfill on Calvary. This Jesus who died a sinner's death, who serves as our eternal high priest, deserves our utmost appreciation and adoration. If our eyes are not fixed on Christ, there's something drastically wrong. Our eyes need to be focused in on the Messiah. God has displayed him publicly. God has set him before us. He is wonderful to behold. He's, he's magnificent. Now, we as believers know without a doubt that Christ needs to be at the center of our view. We live in a world that is designed about and around entertainment and things that help us, quote-unquote, pass the time. So often we can be carried away by so many distractions that often leave us looking at the old Bible and the old gospel as something we have to do rather than a great privilege and a blessing. I know that in my own life I, I'm distracted so often, and I look forward to the day when I will have a, a new heavenly body and my affections will be solely placed on Christ and all of the things in this world that are designed to draw my attention and my gaze away from Christ will be taken and that's an, that's an exciting thing to think about. When we look at the Word of God, one of the most wonderful things that I find about it is its inexhaustibility. 
God's word will never pass away. The, the well is so deep, we can never plumb the depths. We can never exhaust it. They'll never be able to discover all there is about the triune God and what he has done in Christ. And the deeper we go, the more we realize this to be true. What a blessing to have a well that never dries up, a well that gives eternal life to all who drink in its richness. Now, as believers, we are confronted with the glory. Uh, now, as believers, when we are confronted with the glory of Jesus, our hearts should be thrilled to know Him and to hear what He has done on our behalf. The gospel is a great message to hear every time someone stands up to speak. Amen. But sometimes, and for various reasons, we can become either dry or disinterested in these things. And I want to talk briefly about that. Now, should we as Christians rejoice in the gospel? Yes, we should. What if the message of God's gospel is something that is less than sweet music to our ears? A couple of things come to mind. If you're sitting under the clear teaching of God's word, and you understand its truth, but it makes you feel uneasy and a little bored, then quite possibly you are living in some sort of besetting sin that you need to confess to God. This isn't something to take lightly. Search your heart and lay it before God and be honest with him. Ask him to break the chains of besetting sin in your life. Maybe you're here and you understand the gospel, but you find yourself smug and feeling justified doing some of the things you do in life even though you know they are sinful. Confess this as sin. Unless hearing things about sacrifices and blood and death and the wrath of God make you feel angry and resentful towards this message, search your heart. If this is found in you, it could very well be that you are lost and still under the judgment of God. Or could it be that you actually have no personal interest in God at all and your motives are purely selfish? If this is found in you, then you are commanded by the authority of the scriptures to repent and believe the gospel. Cry out to God for salvation. He will by no means turn away any who come to him. But no one will find eternal life in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. No good we can do will ever save us from the just requirements of God's law that he has set forth for all mankind. Jesus alone is able to save you from his sin, from your sin, and eternal life, or, and give you eternal life. Some months ago, Pastor John was teaching, and he challenged us as believers to confess if we had a lack of desire for God as sin and to repent of it. <clears throat> I, in the seasons of my life in Christ, have uh, been thrilled to understand some of the attributes of God. And uh, I studied for years this topic and I've often been taken away by it. And that's a marvelous thing. And though my desire for God the Father is strong, and often I, I, would, I would desire him from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep, I felt that at times that I had neglected God the Son, Jesus Christ. I confessed this sin to God and I asked him to give me an exalted view of his Son. And I stand here before you one mesmerized, by the glory of Jesus Christ, and one who knows that God surely answers prayers. There are prayers we can pray with total boldness. Confessing any lack of desire towards God the Father, God the Son, or the Holy Spirit will most surely be answered. 
My prayer for all of us here is that we will exalt Christ in our hearts and our lives. If you're here feeling stuck, or you're not sure if your confession is real, whatever may be on your heart concerning these things, please don't leave here without seeking counsel from one of the men or from someone you trust. Let us love one another by offering our time and our help to each other. We were not made to walk this road alone. We were made to walk in fellowship with one another. Leaning on one another, spurring each other on to a sweeter and more blessed relationship with our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise.